Hey, this is Vanessa, and I am the Prevention Services Coordinator at King County Sexual Assault Resource Center, or KSARC. This is Building Resilience, a project with the purpose of equipping people with what they need to end sexual violence. So you've probably heard of the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? It's the joke that no matter which actor you think of, they can somehow be connected to Kevin Bacon in six steps or less. So you name an actor and connect them with an actor they've appeared in a film with and keep repeating this to find the shortest path that leads you to connect to Kevin Bacon. And the joke is that you can get there within six steps. So hear me out, but I kind of feel like the same can be said about sexual violence and other public health issues. When you dig into the data and research, you see that sexual violence has so many connections with other concerns in our society. Opioid use, unintended pregnancies, poverty, cervical cancer, the list goes on and on. Maybe because sexual violence is sensitive in nature and for some can feel taboo to talk about in some settings, many people see it as an isolated incident that just happens. It can help for us to discuss sexual violence in the context of our larger society and the systems we live in and how these both contribute to and impact sexual violence. The National Sexual Violence Resource Center has a bunch of really great resources focused on the connection between oppression and sexual violence and how we must focus our prevention efforts on the deep-rooted systems of inequity in our society, not just on the individuals in our lives. I connected with Mo Lewis, the prevention specialist at NSVRC, who, fun fact, used to be a preventionist at KSARC. Here's our conversation about what all of this means for community sexual assault programs like KSARC and for people who are determined to eliminate all abuses of power in our society. As a heads up, we do discuss sexual violence and other forms of abuse, but not in great detail. Thanks so much for having me here. This is really exciting. Um, I'm Mo Lewis. I'm the prevention specialist at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. And before this job, I worked at KSARC. So it's really cool getting to like talk with you and talk about prevention. It's like come full circle. Yes. So um, Mo, what does it mean to say that sexual violence is inextricably linked to oppression? It's such a good question. I think it's one that has been coming up a lot lately. And I think also COVID has really made some some things clear for us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I really think that when we link sexual violence to oppression, it really places it within the context of the society we live in. And it gives us a framework to understand it better. Um, So yeah, this country was founded during a time when mass enslavement was largely considered normal. It was like part of the founding of this country. And that was something that was continued for like 400 plus years. And that's a really long time. It's like generations of time, generations of people thinking like, well, this is just how it is. And that's how it always has been, right? Um, And we know that sexual violence was routinely used as a weapon during that time. It was used as a weapon of slavery. Um, And these things don't just leave us. We can really trace connections back to how laws and systems have persisted in racism toward Black people even now. So even laws that exist right now um, are still things that just are kind of a holdover and continuation that we haven't really fixed yet. Um, We also displaced millions of indigenous people and communities in order to create this country and sexual violence was used during this colonization, right? So when we really look at our history and we follow that path to how this history is still living on in harmful ways and in harmful systems, harmful stereotypes, all of those things, it can really help us better understand what we're trying to change. And it can also help us like think about what we want to see instead. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think about some really cool conversations that I've had in, um, like, before the pandemic, I was doing um, prevention lessons in a history class, the history teacher Mm -hmm. had me in. And it was really cool to be able to, like, tie what we were talking about to the material that they were having. Like, I think, um, I, I think a student once brought up, we were talking about know, boundaries and communication and just making sure that everyone's on the same page. And they were like, that's kind of like some of the treaties that were signed by, you know, Native Americans uh, with no understanding of like what some concepts like land ownership really are. And I was like, yes, yes, that is a great example. That's a great Um, example. Right? Yeah. (laughs) That was super cool. These are seventh graders at Risden Middle School. Shout out to them. So they smart. Were so smart. How yeah. can you consent to something that you don't know what it is? It's just exactly. key. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So anyway, um, yeah. Um, so kind of talking more about using an anti-oppression lens in our prevention efforts. Um, why is this necessary? Um, and what are some possible harms that can be caused by not centering anti-oppression? Mm-hmm. It's such a good question. I mean, a lot of the times we talk, and I think we have talked in this movement about sexual violence as this individual act. It's like someone choosing to violate someone else. And it's really valid. It's an important aspect of our work, especially when we're working with people after traumatic events. We really want to be trauma-focused, trauma-specific, and really working with those individuals. Um, And we've kind of done that too in prevention, thinking of it as like changing individual hearts and minds. And there's still a place for that. And there's still you know, a lot of good that comes from that. But if you think about just like working with each individual person individually, like finding out what their beliefs are, what led them to think that some things are okay. um, It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of like, okay, that would take maybe forever. Um, And I think that zooming out and looking at our culture in this wider lens can really help us see things like patterns and widespread problematic beliefs. And it can help us also like change this larger society so that things like equity and respect and safety become those like widespread norms. Um, there's this example that my coworker really likes to talk about of a dirty fish pond. <laughs> and you can kind of have this image in your head of like a fish, a fish tank or a fish pond. And if we're the fish and we get some sort of like special prevention food, like that's really great. It's changing our lives. Like we're more enlightened fish or something. Um, and we're going to change our behavior and that's great, but we're still living in a dirty pond and maybe mm-hmm. it still has like weeds and pollution and like all of this stuff. And that's still going to affect us. And so, So in thinking about prevention on this kind of larger scale, we really want to impact the whole pond. So like taking out invasive weeds, filtering the water, um, putting in beneficial plants and like that kind of thing. So changing that larger pond system or fish tank system would benefit every single fish and not just the ones like us who got that special prevention food, right? (laughs) So that's like one way of thinking about like the importance of it. But then when we're talking about like causing harm, I really think, yeah, you're so right about this. And it's in, it makes me think of a lot of the ways that we can cause harm um, inadvertently, like when we don't think that we might be causing harm or we think we're just doing something okay because it's just normal and fine to us. Um, on a personal level, like one example could be if you don't understand how harmful gender stereotypes are different depending on someone's identity, um, you could accidentally dismiss someone's experience. And there was this prevention group that I was part of and 
we were talking about consent and boundaries and some of the black youth in the group were talking about how one of the most routine violations of their personal boundaries and consent was when people would touch their hair and it would Mm -hmm. happen like all the time in really weird sneaky ways and people wouldn't ask and they it's just like violating you know like really getting into someone's personal space Mm -hmm. um and there's the and there's the racialized aspect of it too right of like who Mm -hmm. who gets to touch someone else without consent and why you would think that that's okay um and as a white person, this is not something that I have experienced. But if I were to be like, what? That's not a thing. Like, that's not a big deal. That would be causing harm. And I think that sometimes yes. we do that inadvertently if we are not able to kind of listen and believe other people's experiences and perspectives, especially if it's about something in in life where like we might have a privileged identity and someone else does not have a privileged identity. So that's one way. Oh, there's this um, really powerful example I learned at this workshop a few years ago, um, led by some young folks at API Chaya who were Mm -hmm. doing prevention work. And they did, they presented this at the state sexual assault prevention conference. Um, And they were talking about how just doing a Google image search can highlight harmful gender stereotypes and how they're really different based on race. And Mm -hmm. they like pulled up the computer, pulled up the search image, and they're like, let's do it. Um, And, you know, just looking up like Latino women yielded really different search results than looking at like Asian women or black Mm -hmm. women and white women. Um, And like being able to understand where those stereotypes came from and how and why they're even showing up now in like this image search online is really important Mm -hmm. if we want to like be effective in our work and then also not cause harm too on that like interpersonal level. Um, And then I'm thinking about like the systemic level too of like causing harm, right? So if we don't center our work in anti-oppression, it can systemically cause harm too. Mm -hmm. So we were talking before about like the history and stuff and like the young folks that you worked with who are like, hey, these treaties, like those absolutely caused harm. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, you know, policies and procedures, legislation, curriculum, any of those things. So like maybe we're um, working at a center and we're offering funding for healing services to people after a sexual assault. Um, But maybe we only allow certain kinds of like research-based or evidence-based healing modalities. Mm -hmm. And so maybe someone's like traditional or indigenous healing methods are left out or like they're not able to be reimbursed. And so that would be leaving out whole groups of people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Or we see this a lot in curriculum development too. So like maybe we create um, a sexual health curriculum or a sexual violence prevention curriculum and we research it and we test it, um, but we're really only testing it with like middle-class white students in a suburban population. And we're like, okay, it's research-based, it's good, it has good um, impacts and all of that kind of stuff. But we don't really know that it will necessarily be a successful curriculum for students who don't fit within Mm -hmm. each of those specific demographics, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, there's so many things. And I think, um, you know, COVID has really made a lot of those systemic inequities, the the things that are continuing from our history that are still impacting people now, it's really made that clear. Um, The African-American Policy Forum started this podcast called Under the Blacklight, and they started it during COVID. And it really gets at how this pandemic has laid bare a lot of those systemic inequities. So um, if folks are interested in learning more about that, I just think it's, this is like a time where um, our executive director, Yolanda Edrington, she says this thing where she's like, 
ignorance is not an option anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, yes, I Mm -hmm. want you to say that forever. I want to say it too. (laughs) Um, Because it's kind of like at this point, if you still don't think there's a problem, then you're not paying attention. And I think COVID has really made that so clear, right? So yeah, we definitely don't want to do harm with our work. So I think that connection is, is key. Yes, 100%. And um, I, you know, I was just having this conversation earlier this week of how, you know, if you go to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention page, and Mm -hmm. you look at the risk and protective factors for sexual violence perpetration, which is like our go to when we're, you know, putting in for grants to help fund our prevention work and how icky it is when you have to say like some of the risk factors are poverty, lack of employment opportunities and Mm -hmm. how stigmatizing that is and how it just perpetuates and furthers harm to, you know, that coded racialized language of who do we think of when we think about these populations. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something that I've been reflecting on a lot um, in how, you know, I don't further harm by using kind of those languages that, oh, yeah. um, you know, evoke the super predator, um, if you will, um, and who we think of as the ones that perpetrate harm and um, commit crimes in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, it means we need to be like really careful in how we talk about those statistics, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might be true that these are risk factors for potentially perpetrating. But in the work that we do, and whenever I do a training about this, I'm always like, these are correlations. These are Mm -hmm. not causes. So like Mm -hmm. not every person who grew up in poverty or like with not a good relationship with your parents is going to grow up to like Mm -hmm. use sexual violence against other people. It doesn't work that way. But I think when we're not careful in, like you were saying, how we talk about it, it can totally stigmatize people. And that's our responsibility as people who are leaders in this work, who are um, the people doing this work and and sending out a lot of messages about sexual violence and the harms that that we don't that we don't do that that we can be a little more careful in in how we explain it, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so, I I want to talk more about what the responsibilities of community sexual assault programs like Case Arcs are to center all forms of oppression. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. I mean, I think it goes back to like thinking about how we talk about um, how we talk about those statistics. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. we we have the responsibility to place it within a context. Um, We have a a historical context. We have like regional contexts of of why these things are happening. Right. And it's not just that someone is growing up in a poor household. It's that like, why? Why is that? What are the conditions that like caused that to be so. And Mm -hmm. the thing that I think is really great about community sexual assault programs and is important to to remember is that these are programs that are really valued and they're really trusted. And these are the places like KSARC where people go to get the very best information about this sensitive, private, personal topic, you know, Mm -hmm. like 
this is a community hub in a lot of ways. Um, and so we're the people to do this work. If we can connect the dots and we can show people how our history shows up in the present moment, how oppression is interwoven in policies and laws, how we need to center all forms of oppression, people will really listen. This is, I think, a really great opportunity for um, all sexual assault programs. And it's something that we're really well equipped to do. And I think it also means that we have to be able to like walk our talk, right? Like mm-hmm. it can be really easy to make a statement, um, but we can also work on changing our internal structures so that we're modeling the world that we want to see and the world that we mm-hmm. want to live in. And this mm-hmm. is a process that NSVRC is going through right now. We're, it's been a few years and we've been really looking at um, anti-oppression and specifically anti-racism and how can we infuse um, the idea of being an anti-racist organization throughout the organization and not just like in statements that we're making, but like right. how mm-hmm. we do our work. And it's a long and hard process. It's not really easy and pleasant, but a lot of it I think is really fun and really empowering. And there's lots of people out there who are already doing this work that we can learn from. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, Sometimes people think about it as like, oh, we have to make changes. But I like to think about it as like, we get to make changes. Like Mm -hmm. we get to build what we want to see. We get to shift and move and create new things and move towards something that's going to be better for everybody and not just a select few people. So yeah, I definitely think there's that responsibility, but I also think it's such a, it's such a gift and it's such a privilege to be able to be like, mm-hmm. hey, we can switch things up and we can try things a different way. And it's yeah. also very prevention-y because it's kind of mm-hmm. that evaluative process, right? Of like, what's working? What didn't work? What can we tweak and change? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I really want to like lift up that you said that there are people that, you know, are doing the work that are living, you know, the experiences mm-hmm. of, you know, really centering and prioritizing anti-oppression and anti-racism. Um, and I feel like sexual violence work is so often siloed from other work that's happening in the communities. Um, how do you think that, you know, places like KSARC can work with other fields and other movements in communities? I know that you see lots of examples out there. So what what have you seen? Oh, so many cool things. And I also have to agree with you, it is really siloed. Um, and it doesn't have to be. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be siloed. And I also would say that if we're thinking about the history of this movement, this work has not always been siloed the way it is. Like mm-hmm. the the siloing that we have is largely due to like funding and how people are funded and like Mm -hmm. all of that stuff, which makes sense because we need to be able to say like, here's the work that we're going to do to get this funding and do, and do this work and have these outcomes. But it doesn't mean that we always have to do it that way. And it doesn't mean that we're just limited to doing certain things. And so, um, yeah, when we're thinking about the silos and how we can like work with other movements and other fields, we have this infographic um, that we created at NSVRC that I'm very proud of. I helped on it. Um, it's called the Risk and Protective Factor Infographic. And I really like to share it because it points out all of the connections that um, exist between, well, not all of the connections, but a lot of them that exist between mm-hmm. sexual violence prevention and other social movements. And what it does mm-hmm. is it uses... Um, two public health frameworks. It uses risk and protective factors, which you already brought up, and then Mm. also social determinants of health. And Mm. those are listed out as a way to give us um, 
the ability to trace how the work is interconnected. So I think that like showing our work can be really important when we're saying things like, hey, we have to center what we do in anti-oppression or like, let's get more involved in housing stability work or ending mm-hmm. homelessness. Um, there's going to be people who don't automatically get that connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's natural. I mean, it totally makes sense. So I think for us, being able to tie it back to these public health models can be really helpful because the information is there. It's all there. And it mm-hmm. comes from the CDC and the World Health Organization, which are, you know, pretty reputable as mm-hmm. far as our field goes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think sometimes there's this fear that we're going to be like losing out on something by if we say we're going to do work on like pay equity or housing mm-hmm. or or things that are not explicitly named as sexual violence prevention or sexual assault prevention, like if it doesn't have those words in it, people right. get kind of squirrely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really get it. I think in this movement, you know, we worked really hard for a really long time to be even able to like go to a school and say the word sexual assault right. or like have a table and say sexual assault without pushback. Right. So That's a really, really big deal. Um, The other thing that's true is that we need these larger partnerships and the focuses if we want to change the landscape of our society, because sexual violence doesn't happen without all the other contexts in which we live. So Mm -hmm. if we want to clean up the fish pond, we have to work together with people. Um, It also really helps save money. I don't know. Some people really care about money and funding is always so tight and, and difficult. So it can really help us kind of band together and and get the best like bang for our buck with our funding. Um, And yeah, in terms of examples, there's one I want to point out specifically, and then I'll point people to like a podcast too. So we did this podcast series um, about COVID and health equity because we were like, oh, this has really changed things. And Mm -hmm. there's always been Um, a focus of like prevention. Prevention is health equity and health equity Mm -hmm. is important for sexual violence prevention. Um, But COVID, you know, as we know, has made a lot of things more clear. Um, And so in this podcast series, we talked with people at different local programs about how their work has changed because of COVID. And one example is about the Sistas van. So the organization Black Women's Blueprint has this van to do mobile healing and prevention. And so they already had this van. It's really smart. Like instead of people having to come to the center, they just have like all the same stuff and all the same people in this van and they can go out into the communities. Mm. So when COVID hit, they saw that there was this increased need for essential supplies like food and clothes and hygiene products. And so they were really able to shift their services to meet the immediate needs of the community. And um, because it was a well-known program already, like people already knew it, they already loved and trusted them. They were able to make the the shift really effectively and really easily. Um, And in that podcast episode, they talked about how this is a form of mutual aid work. And Mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of focus on mutual aid during the pandemic. And in case people don't really know like what mutual aid is, um, I just like to explain it as like people looking out for each other. So just, you know, making sure we each have what we need to get by. And like philosophically, it tends to be different than like this charity or donation kind of model. And Mm -hmm. it's more kind of like, hey, neighbor, I have extra grocery money this month, so, like, I'll help you out, and then, like, Mm -hmm. you'll help me out next time kind of thing. And it comes really from this understanding that we're all connected and we all need each Mm -hmm. other. And so to see the sisters van make the shift is really cool. And then um, if there's anybody listening who's like, 
but wait, how does it actually tie into sexual assault prevention? It helps build community support and connectedness protective factor. Mm-hmm. Um, it also bolsters um, social determinants of health, like people having resources to meet their daily needs. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of make those connections there to um, to see how it's related, right? And mm-hmm. then also when we take a look at the risk and protective factors and the social determinants of health, there are really big overlaps with other forms of violence and other social movements. Um and really, the the lesson that I take away from the Sisters Van Project is that we can all start right away by building relationships with others. So like other people in other organizations or just other organizations in general, like, are we showing up to their events? Mm-hmm. Are we helping promote their work and their programs? Like, these are things we could be doing right now. It doesn't take a lot of work. Yeah, um, easily. Yeah. And it helps us. So like when something like COVID happens again, um, we already have those relationships built in so that we can make a shift. Or if we have to move on to something that's different or more expansive, then we're ready for it. We already know the people. We already have relationships. Um, So yeah, I really like that example. But if you want to hear about other examples, including one from the Seattle area, um, you can check out the podcast series. Like, I feel like it's very podcasty to be like, listen to this other podcast episode too. Um, we'll drop the link in the show notes. <laughs> yes, drop the link. That is another podcast. I feel like if we had a podcast bingo, we would be checking off all the yeah, right. right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, it makes so much sense when you start thinking about it this way. Um when I was doing this work in Eastern Washington, right? Like there was understandably a lot of communities that were like, well, you know, sexual violence, domestic, you know, domestic violence, not really an issue. Don't really Mm -hmm. want an outsider really talking about these things. Yeah. But a lot of them were concerned about, you know, youth suicide Mm -hmm. and substance use. And I'm like, hey, you know, like talking about healthy relationships and like doing the work of really like building community is kind of doing both of those things, right? Preventing violence and addressing, you know, like how folks who experience trauma are, you know, going to be at increased risk of utilizing substances to cope and, Mm -hmm. you know, drawing all those connections that make people see like, yeah, like y'all aren't in a silo or you shouldn't be in a silo. Um, We should all be just doing this work together. Oh, definitely. Um, Yes. It makes me think of this other resource that, I don't know, I think it's pretty fun. I'm sure that you've seen it. I'll have to find it and send it to you or you could put it in the, put it in the show notes. <laughs> I'm doing little air quotes. Um, but it's this connection selector tool from the oh. CDC. And I think it's it's something related to like connecting the dots. I think it's on the Veto Violence website. And it's very colorful and interactive. And what you can do is um, you can, out of all these different forms of violence that have shared risk and protective mm. factors, you can click on the ones that you're working on and you can see what other forms of violence are related. And it breaks them down by level of the social ecological model. It is very nerdy for folks who are into public health. But I think it might also be helpful for these situations where people mm-hmm. are like, I don't know about sexual violence. Like that doesn't mm-hmm. happen here. We hear people mm-hmm. say that all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like the opioid crisis is huge yes. and there's mm-hmm. a really big connection. Mm-hmm. Um, also like child maltreatment, elder mm-hmm. abuse, like all sorts of things that are connected that we can really see these clear pathways of like why we have to work together and why yeah. 
working on one will benefit the others as well. Yes. Yes, yeah, you absolutely. Can, I'm sure you've seen it. It's all the different colors and you click and, and it's pretty fun. I don't know if I have. I'll def- like, I am so curious right now to check it out. So I'll have to mm-hmm. do that. It's right up my alley. Yeah, um, I think it is. <laughs> so Mo, what three takeaways would you want to leave with listeners? Um, what what can they do after hearing us, you know, talk about all these maybe seemingly high level things? Um, mm-hmm. what, what can they do? Yeah, I feel like we've been kind of like dreaming and scheming, like, mm-hmm. like, what do we want to do? What do we want to build? Okay, if I had to pick three takeaways, um, I think the first one would be to really get familiar with the frameworks, the public health frameworks of um, risk and protective factors and social determinants of health. Those are models that already exist. They already have the information that show the connection between um, oppression and sexual violence and Mm -hmm. the reasons why anti-oppression is so important. And so if that feels unfamiliar to you, that's what I would encourage you to do is take a look at that. Um, and you can just practice. You can be like, what are the things that are connected? How can I talk Mm -hmm. about this differently? Um, I think it can really help people understand why our work is so connected. Um, Another thing that I think is just always really fun to do is taking steps to build relationships with other people whose work might be considered like not related or outside of our field. Mm -hmm. So like promote their stuff online, go show up to their things, Um, maybe go get coffee with someone like at an outdoor cafe or something like that if it seems safe to you. Um, We can start anytime to build these connections. And I think Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you've like been at your job for 10 years or whatever, you can still always start to meet different people. And it's it's a good time to do it right now. It's summer, Mm -hmm. go get a coffee, um, make sure it can count for your work. I think relationship building should count for our work because it's just such a key component, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last thing I would say is probably like check out these other podcasts. So like the Under the Blacklight podcast series um, or the COVID and Health Equity podcast series. I think that if you want examples of things and if examples are the kind of thing that help you learn, um, those can be really useful to help you understand the connections in a different way and then also give lots of examples for the work that other people are doing. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Anything else you want to add? Um, Um, I think KSARC is great. And I want to say hello to everybody who I used to work with. I mean, you don't have to keep this in here if you don't want to, but (laughs) hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, I still talk about, I still talk about the work that KSARC does all the time. Um, And particularly there's this thing that's always stuck with me is how there's been a lot of education from KSARC about the ways that people talk about and report on sexual violence, crimes, and court cases, Mm -hmm. and how to not use um, language that makes things sound consensual when it's not. And that was so instrumental for me in my job and in how I talk about things. And so I'm just always like, hey, do you know what KSARC does? They have this thing and then they talk about the words that people use. And I I can see the changes that have been happening over the past five or so years where reporters are really reporting differently about things. And I think that the work of, of KSARC has helped that a lot. So yay. Yeah, that's that going to be an upcoming <laughs> episode. But it's, yeah, it's so great because you can use it with like reporters, yeah. um, the criminal legal system. 
I use it with students too because, mm-hmm. you know, the words that you use make such a difference. So Yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Mo. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun to talk to you and to also get to share and and nerd out a little bit about public health frameworks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Mo Lewis for the content in this episode. Be sure to check out all of our show notes for the great resources that were mentioned. This episode was edited and produced by me, Vanessa Corwin of King County Sexual Assault Resource Center. Find us online at kcsarc.org on socials at KCSARC, or email us at education at KCSARC.org. Thanks for listening.